Skull Shack reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, well, into his heart. Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker. This is the story behind the most incredible series of murders to ever occur in the city of Seattle, Washington. You never read about them in your local newspapers or heard about them on your local radio or television station. Why? Because the facts were watered down, torn apart and reassembled. In a word, falsified. Saturday, April 1st, approximately 2.35 a.m. Marissa, one of the three belly dancers at Omar's Tent, a well-known bar in the Pioneer Square area. She was through for the night and on her way to St. James Street, where she could catch the 3 a.m. bus that would take her to her small apartment in the Shoreline Park area. Anxious to get home, she planned to take a shower and go right to bed. She never made it. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak. It was recorded during his brief stint working in Seattle with the Daily Chronicle on a story commonly referred to as the Night Strangler. Yes, we're talking about January 16, 1973, and the release of the second Kolchak made-for-TV movie, The Night Strangler. This is the return of Carl. The first uh, episode, the first movie, was so successful that they had to come back and do a sequel. So from The Night Stalker, we went to The Night Strangler. They kind of gathered up some of the same folks who had worked on the first one. So there's uh, directed by... Dan Curtis, written by Richard Matheson, and of course based upon the character of Jeffrey Grant Rice, who then later adapted the Matheson screenplay for a novelization of The Night Strangler. So in the first one, it was Matheson taking Rice's work and adapting it for the screen, and then with this one, it was Rice taking Matheson's work and adapting it for a book. So we'll talk about the differences, the similarities, all that kind of stuff as we go along. So Chris, I'm very curious, what did you think of The Night Strangler? Well, first off, I'm curious if we're talking about the same thing because you said Carl Kolchak, and I'm pretty sure we should be talking about Carl Kolchak, or that's what he calls himself in The Night Strangler. Yeah, that was kind of a strange little uh, change there. I wondered when uh, when Professor Dewitziak was calling him Kolchak the whole time, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell is Kolchak? And then he calls himself Kolchak in this. But in the first, it's Kolchak. I know that this is a controversial opinion for fans of Kolchak and the Kolchak series, but I don't think the Night Strangler is as good as the Night Stalker. (gasps) (sighs) Gotta go, folks. (laughs) Gotta go murder people and then hide for 21 years. I don't think it's as good. Personally, I don't think it's as good. It's definitely very similar to the Night Stalker, and I think no one would deny that. I think uh, even the folks involved, I know Matheson actually had a hard time coming up with a story for the second movie, and pretty much took the same idea. I mean, that we start off with, I mean, 
when I was watching the Night Strangler again recently, it started and my wife's like, didn't we just watch this? I'm like, no, no, this is the Night Strangler. But then as I'm watching it and Carl's there giving his VO and it's this woman walking alone on the streets and she's trying to get a cab. I was like, yeah, well, you know, this is the Night Strangler. Maybe we did just rewatch this. Is this not the same thing? Yeah. And then Joanne Flug's name comes up on screen. I was like, no, no. That's the difference. It's a different woman this time. Okay. And yeah, then it ended up being very, very similar. I mean, to the point of there are, what, six victims in this one. Allegedly, they're strangled to death, thus the Night Strangler. But before they're strangled, or maybe shortly thereafter, they have blood taken out of them through a puncture wound in the back of their neck. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of like a vampire, but a little different. They have blood taken out of their body through the back of their neck for no reason at all. Is it in the back of their neck? It's super strange. And it's like they mention it and Kolchak's like, hmm. And then there's no mention of it again. I thought for sure it'd be something to do. Like, it's not actually the blood he's taking, but it's actually something like a spinal fluid, spinal fluid. Or like, I'm looking up this afternoon where the pituitary gland is. Cause I'm like, wasn't there a TV show or a movie where somebody was stealing people's pituitary glands and it would give them eternal life or something. So I was thinking, well, maybe it's a glandular thing that he's doing here. Maybe it's tombs from X-Files. You mentioned that ahead of time to me, that it reminded you a lot of it. And when I was watching it, that's exactly what I thought of as well. Because of this X-Files Kolchak connection, you can't help but like keep an eye out for those kinds of influences, like direct influences. This episode, like the tombs and squeeze episodes, tombs more than, than squeeze, it's like a direct copy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with with Tombs and with Squeeze, it was that he goes out, what, every 30 years and he eats five livers. And, and then, then he, he goes into his own cage, yeah. Right. And in this one, it's Dr. Richard Malcolm, who murders six women uh, over a period of, what, 18 days or something. And then he goes away. He doesn't hibernate. He's uh, hanging out in his laboratory I guess, I don't know, working on cribbage, perfecting his formula, that kind of stuff. He does that for 21 years, and then he'll come back and start the cycle over again. He has a really tan face. Richard Anderson is really tan for being underground for 21 years. I guess it's to show that he is very healthy when he is finally completely reconstituted, maybe. I think my issue with the Night Strangler versus the Night Stalker versus even Tombs, if we're talking about the quality of the villains, in Tombs and Squeeze, which again, they're practically carbon copies the villain is from the Night Strangler, you get to see the villain's motivation. You get to see the villain. You get to understand why the villain is doing what he's doing. In the Night Stalker, you get a sense of why the villain is doing what he's doing, why the vampire is killing people and in the night strangler you have like there's like an idea of why he's killing people it's not confirmed until the last scene and there is like a five minute interaction between malcolm and kolchak and then that's it it is it it falls so flat because kind of like the night stalker it wraps up way too quickly which i think is a big pro which i think is a big problem with tv movies in general are these you know, it's the time constraints 
And, you know, I understand, but you can't let your writing fall by the wayside because, oh, got to wrap up. We only have five minutes left. They really kind of wasted Richard Anderson in this because I was thinking like, oh, cool, Richard Anderson, great actor. And then there's even a line like when he and Kolchak are finally having their conversation at the end where he's like, oh, haven't we met before? And and Kolchak's like, oh, yeah, you tried to murder me the other night in an alley. And I was like, oh, yeah, that scene did take place. And that was totally the scene of the cops uh, trying to take down uh, the vampire in the pool kind of thing. But in this time, they're they're in an alley. And I was like, wow, they, the, all the beats are almost exactly the same in this one. But they're not done as well. They're the same beats. They just they don't. I maybe I'm I'm curious if I had never seen Night Stalker and I had watched this, if I would have been like, wow, this is really cool. I bet you would have. Yeah, but the problem is, is that's not the way it works. Alternative facts. That's not the way it works. Night Stalker exists. So unfortunately, this is kind of diminishing returns because it's a, a carbon copy of the first made-for-TV movie, pilot, episode, whatever you want to classify it is. It's all of those three things. So it, it just it falls flat for me. And I know that, again, sacrilege, because a lot of people like this, The Night Strangler, a lot more than they like Night Stalker. It's okay, Chris. You can like The Night Stalker more than The Night Strangler. It's all right. The Secret Police will not be coming for me soon. Not for that reason. Yeah, there are definitely other reasons, but not that one. You will not be taking a, a trip to room 101 for that reason. I, I like some of the side characters more in The Night Strangler. I actually like his love interest more. It's a little bit more fleshed out. And this whole thing of her talking more than Kolchak and talking faster than Kolchak, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and that her uh, her hips move as fast as her lips at one point. <laughs> He talks about there's a lot of belly dancing in this movie, um, so it's it's not that bad as far as that goes. Though I was in 2017 watching this and the way that he's kind of making fun of uh, charisma beauty. And then she has uh, a girlfriend, a lesbian lover, Wilma Crankheimer, and he keeps calling Wilma her husband and just giving her like the hairy eyeball and stuff like isn't this funny that they're lesbians and i'm like ah, that really kind of makes me uncomfortable now that he's making fun of lesbians this is what happens when you watch stuff that's older is that oh is that weird that it's two women together and she calls her her husband at one point there's other nitpicky things that bothered me in in uh, in the night strangler again just the fact that it's an overall carbon copy of the original but to your point, Joanne Flug in this is much more interesting than Kolchak's love interest in The Night Stalker. In The Night Stalker, not only does she disappear at the end, again, that was something that really irked me when we talked in our first episode, that her character just, oh, and she's gone, she got run out of town. I'm assuming Joanne Flug's character never comes back. No, no, she never comes back, but at least they end the movie with her in the car with him and Vincenzo. I would rather her not be in the car at the end, because what's the point of that if she never comes back? Well, I think they thought she was going to come back, though she wasn't in the third movie, at least the script. And she wasn't obviously in Kolchak, the Night Stalker, the television series. Right. So it's just strange to me, considering how Simon Oakland, they make a point of him getting in the car with Kolchak to go with him. Right. Does that make which sense? Is, yeah, which is kind of strange. 
I mean, of, of all the gin joints for Carl to show up in, he happens to show up in the one where Vincenzo is drinking in Seattle. Yeah. So I sit and I just kind of it's, it's just like, well, I don't know why she's there. OK, that's fine. I'll concede to them that she needs to be there in the car at the end. But the way that they handle her character is not really much better than the way they handled Kolchak's love interest in the first episode. I do have to issue a mea culpa for the last episode. I was calling Kolchak's girlfriend Sue, and it was Sam. So I, I made a mistake with that one, but uh, that was just the, the heat of the moment. I was trying to recall her name. And that's where, I mean, you're talking about the carbon copy feeling of this to the first movie. And what's really strange is that when Matheson was creating the second script, he returned to the well. He went back to the Kolchak papers, AKA the night stalker book and pulled in characters from the book. So it was really kind of strange. Like the character of professor Crabwell, who's played by Margaret Hamilton in this, she was a character in the first book. She was Kolchak's. He took a class in uh, at UNLV, and she was one of his professors. And she's the one who gave him all these books or loaned him all these books about vampires. And then in the novelization that Rice did, he had to kind of hurry up and explain why she was in Seattle now. <laughs> Because it's like, this is the same character, so I might as well call her the same character and somehow get her to Seattle. Same thing goes for the one character, Janie Watkins, who's played by Kate Murtaugh. She's the kind of heavier, older lady that works in the newsroom of Carl and has this kind of like back and forth with Carl a couple times. She just taunts him the whole time. Right. <laughs> Which isn't her character from the first from the book she worked in the newsroom with carl and then when rice was adapting this he had to then say when vincenzo moved to seattle that he took her with him that he really admired her journalism skills and that he took her with him and it's like okay so yeah they don't really explain who the hell she is in the movie <laughs> she's just taunting kolchak for no reason right and no, they don't have that relationship really in the in the book either. Like even in Rice's adaptation, he didn't have that taunting thing. And then the other one is Llewellyn Crossbinder, who's played by John Carradine in The Night Strangler. He's also from the book of The Night Stalker, and then he shows up in this one. So it was really kind of weird how he would Matheson went back to the original and just pulled in all these characters, and then you know. <laughs> And then you've got Rice coming in and doing the adaptation and like, oh, shit, now I got to move all these people from Las Vegas to Seattle for some odd reason. The Crossbinder, I think, had a different name possibly in the first one. So it was just basically the owner of the newspaper is a crotchety old man, which I guess kind of goes for all newspapers, at least all, you know, Rupert Murdoch newspapers. Well, they sell the ones that Kolchak writes for. That's what it seems like. It seems to me that to really get the full Kolchak experience in these two films, you need to watch both and read both of the books. 
because there's there's a lot of stuff going on in the Night Strangler that isn't happening in the Night Stalker, and you're you're just like, why is this happening? Like he's just in Seattle. Vincenzo is just in Seattle, looking at it 21st century eyes of the way people you know do pop culture now. Obviously, it's a little different than in the 70s when people were just like, man, again, we talked about this last episode. People were just like, eh, okay, I don't really care. I don't really need to ask questions. And I guess we should just kind of be that way. Otherwise, we can come up with like a YouTube video and some sort of like fan theory and talk about like where the lead lines are on the globe and that Kolchak always shows up in these places where there's spiritual activity and that maybe Simon Oakland, maybe Vincenzo was uh, some sort of like a, a demon or an imp who was actually bringing the trouble with him. And then Kolchak was attracted to him for that reason. I mean, I already automatically assumed that Vincenzo and Kolchak were attracted to each other. That's been my slash fic that I've been writing for the last month. So I'm bringing it back, folks. Kirk and Spock slash fic. Nah, Vincenzo and Kolchak, and then he slowly took off his pork pie hat. <laughs> Again, I think you're right. We do have to look at it a little removed from the way we look at pop culture now. In the day and age of the cinematic universe, television universe world. But that being said, it's a little strange that they do waste Richard Anderson and Margaret Hamilton in this movie. Grandpa Al Lewis. Right. Yeah, that too. From the months. It's like, why even have them? They don't even do anything. I think the three of them together each have one scene. Right. Well, and I feel a little bad for John Carradine as well. I mean, that, that's kind of a nice nod to have John Carradine and Al Lewis, who were famous for you know, being vampires and then having Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch of the West. I mean, it's kind of a nice thing to have them in there. But yeah, it's it would have been great to have more of them. I would have loved that. And then what's weird is that what we're watching is the 90-minute version of this. And that, that that's what was released on DVD when Anchor Bay originally released this and then MGM released this as well, I believe. And so the... When it came out, it was a 74-minute movie cut for television, and then they've gone back in and added in things. And I, I'm not exactly sure what all they added in. And then I read that there's even more stuff that was shot and then not added into anything. Like, there's a, a scene in the screenplay uh, where Kolchak, they mentioned a reporter from, I think it was the 1950s story named Jimmy Stacks. And Kolchak actually goes and interviews this guy, but it's really strange. It's only like a page worth of interview. I thought like he would be the older guy. I mean, it was very, again, going back to tombs. <laughs> I was about to say, that's exactly, again, just like straight ripping it off. Oh, yeah, completely. When they go to that sheriff and he's talking about the previous murders and, you know, they show him the photo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's Eugene. Since, you know, what is it? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. They're just wearing it on their sleeve, man. And with the X-Files, they really were. But Tombs and Squeeze are better than this. Night Stalker is better than this. This this just feels like a lesser version of what we've already seen. It does a good job of getting Kolchak and Vincenzo to Chicago, even though it says they're going to New York. <laughs> it does a good job of placing them together in a car going somewhere. But, like, I think the show would have been better if 
it had been them two driving around in a car going to different cities as like Sam and Dean Winchester. Yeah, but like investigative journalists for hire type thing. Because when we get to the show, one of my problems with the show is that it's everything is happening in Chicago because of course it is for no reason. Well, you know, if Chicago doesn't clean up its act when it comes to all of these crazy ghosts and moss monsters and all this kind of stuff, Trump's going to send in the Fed. That's true. Can't confirm. I read it. Alternative facts. Kolchak was it in Chicago. But you know what I mean? Like it it just that was something we talked about in the first episode of isn't it convenient that they're stuck in one city and all these things just seem to be happening for whatever reason. But with the way Night Strangler ends, you have a really interesting premise right there where you've got Vincenzo and Kolchak just driving from town to town, being investigative journalists because Vincenzo has been disgraced because he stood up for Kolchak. And you have them just being journalists for hire as opposed to we're in Chicago. Jack the Ripper is here and there's a lizard underground. Like, oh, God, but why? I wouldn't have mind seeing Joanne Flew come back and as Louise Harper and having her around. I thought she was a great character. If the show was made today, now, now, not 2005 reboot, that's probably the way the show would have gone would have been like a a road show because like supernatural like the x-files it allows you to play with the narrative and narrative conventions a lot more than they're in chicago new york la pick your big metropolitan city in the united states and run with it going back to the 70s i think it would have probably played a little bit more like mcmillan and wife where sometimes you know, Louise Harper's in danger and sometimes she saves the day and all this kind of stuff. So I think they would have had a pretty good man woman relationship happening there. Yeah. And that's and that's the problem with Kolchak once it hits the TV show is it becomes formulaic. And that's why I think people are like, I love watching the character of Kolchak, but the stories that he's part of aren't nearly as interesting because they kind of get rote after a while. And with Night Strangler, you're already seeing that a little bit. Well, and also the humor starts here. I mean, there was a little humor in the previous movie. But it was much darker. Right. Here, it's much lighter. I mean, the interactions with like him and Wally Cox as Mr. Barry... I mean, that's very jokey, and just, yeah, there's there's a lot of lightness when it comes to this one. Even though there's, it's set in a, they had a great idea to set this in old Seattle, and to set this in the underground, this preserved city, you know, that lives underground, uh, underneath Seattle. I thought that was a really smart idea, but I don't know if they necessarily pull it off. How deep underground does Seattle honestly go? Because that was an insane idea for them to try to go with. I haven't been to Seattle in 40 years, so I'm not really sure. Because <laughs> they're uh, they're like implying that there's like New York level of area under the city. Because that area that the sh- that the 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 show ends in, the episode ends in, is massive. Like every time I've watched it, which would be three times now, I'm always astounded by where Kolchak goes to. Because when he goes underground, it's almost like he's, he's I mean, he's obviously going onto a completely different set, but wherever this set is, is gigantic. There's like four or five stories on this set. And it's like none of it's explained either. Again, a lot of what's going on in Night Strangler just irks me because. In Night Stalker, I understood what they were trying to do. In Night Strangler, Malcolm is such a weak villain, and the reveal of, well, he's making a poultice out of 
stuff to live longer, but he's not, he's trying to perfect the immortality serum, but he's just like hanging out underground the whole time. Like why? There's no reason. The whole idea of him over that 18 day period, suddenly he starts to look bad. He starts to hunt the women. He is taking these bits of formula and allegedly he's starting to regenerate, you know, like at first he looks like he drank from the the wrong cup. You know, he looks like he drank from the wrong grail and then he starts to get better and better until he's that tan dashing Richard Anderson at the end. But we don't get enough of that. We get the drawing of him and we hear about the dead skin. I mean, of course this is, 1973 but i'm sure they could have done some pretty good effects on him with his makeup to make him look horrible i mean look what they did at the end he looks ridiculous he does that is terrible makeup even for the 70s it looks like they just slapped some clay on his face yeah it's like melty face man and he's and it's uh he's quickly aging well and that whole thing is completely like Kolchak threw a, a rock through the window and the sunlight comes in and hits him and he you know burns up like a vampire. That's totally what that reminded me of. Yeah, it feels so formulaic. He he dies not because Kolchak like outwardly kills him like the van like he kills the vampire. I mean Kolchak murders someone in the first episode of this show. Can we talk about the space needle scene where he jokes about murdering someone? What the hell tone is this show going for? Yeah, I murdered a guy, killed him. In uh, Las Vegas, and these people in the Space Needle elevator are like, what? Dear God, if I had been Joanne Flug's character, I would have run away. This guy just admitted to murdering someone and joked about it, too. Yeah, and that, yeah, she even does that. Well, that's an elevator ride they won't forget. I was like, oh, yeah. It's it is, kind of inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that was strange. That was very strange. And yeah, no, it is. It's a very mixed tone to it i mean even the scene going back to to al lewis i mean him you know kind of attacking kolchak i mean it doesn't really make sense why he's attacking kolchak other than to be like a mini red herring you know and then i didn't even understand until i went back and read the script that it's him at the end dead like i was like okay is that the is that the tramp because uh, they show like a, a dead body when kolchak is going through uh richard anderson's uh lair and they show this dead body i was like is that the tramp i can't really tell and then finally i reading in the script it's like yeah that's a tramp i'm like okay so I did I did not pick up on that. Why the tramp was murdered makes no sense either. Yeah, I mean, other than he's in the lair. But I feel like he would have really had to go out of his way to wander down. De- Again, it's that it's that weird thing where when you see the tramp, it's like on a tour. He's just like off to the side of a tour. And then they find Kolchak finds him in like God knows how many feet underground in like a like an armoire thought anything about that character honestly because that character wasn't much of anything which it's just again it's just it's a there was a lot of missed opportunities al lewis not being used very well john Carradine not being used very well margaret hamilton not being very used very well and richard anderson being used the least out of any of them i i can't even imagine how much money he made to be on screen for five minutes the other thing is that Kolchak didn't really have a good antagonist when it came to the police. I mean, the guy that plays Captain Schubert, Scott Brady, he does a pretty good job, but 
he's <laughs> you know of, of all the people go ahead and and bring back sheriff lobo i mean that he's the guy claude akins is the guy that i want to see i loved him and you know i loved ralph meeker as well so i mean who wasn't really an antagonist but it was just like he doesn't have anybody to really spar with and then he just is yelling at schubert the whole time you know that whole like you know i've been a reporter for 22 years i've been a, a cop for 30 then retire i'm like nah, that's not a really nice thing to say it's another issue that i have with night strangler kolchak's character he seems like more of a dick and he he's a dick in night stalker but in night strangler he seems unnecessarily dickish yeah which i guess makes sense because he's like i this shit happened in vegas it's happening here again i'm pretty fed up but you're never really given any idea as to the length of time that's passed between vegas and seattle so if this was like a month or two i would understand like him being still pissed but i felt like this was like six or seven months i just felt like he was still he was like just being a dick to everybody to the point he throws something through Vincenzo's window at the end. Yeah, I mean, was this shot in real time? Was this, you know, a, literally a year and a couple days between yeah. the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler? Because how they played out on television. There's just a lot of stuff in this that it feels like they're like, well, you know, I don't know if you saw Night Stalker or not. And you, if you didn't see Night Stalker, let's just kind of replay Night Stalker, but different for the people who did see Night Stalker. Because mind you, again, in the 70s, you could not re-watch TV movies. Exactly. You could really get away with this much easier than us today who can watch both of these episodes or both of these TV movies back to back. So then they were just like, okay, well, we'll just replay it, essentially. Uh, So one thing, another mea culpa from last episode is that I didn't point out, I was pointing out that Darren McGavin played Mike Hammer in a TV series. I totally should have said that it was odd because there were two Mike Hammers in that first movie because Ralph Meeker played Mike Hammer in Kiss Me Deadly. So that was kind of a nice connection as well. I have to say Darren McGavin aged a little bit better. Darren McGavin from the 70s to the 90s looked the same. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, Darren McGavin would kill six people over an 18-day period and drink their blood from the back of their necks. Uh, Is that what that is? I knew it. Wouldn't it have been better if Richard Anderson's character would have been like part of the investigation? Oh, yeah. Like I was thinking about that when I was watching, and I was like, hmm. So you have Richard Anderson, who's like a really well-known actor at the time because of the $6 million man. Wouldn't it have been better if he is somehow later in the 18 days? Because obviously at the beginning, you can't do that because he's you know, falling apart. Or maybe you could. You just change the, you know, the parameters of how that works. Wouldn't it have been better if the big reveal at the end is that he's one of the people who is trying to stop Kolchak? from getting the story out wouldn't that have been better that's kind of what i was thinking they were going to go for when kolchak went to that clinic and there's the picture of the founder of of because it's the whole thing of like what dr richard malcolm's versus dr malcolm richards you know one was his persona when he was in the or general um one of those when he was in the civil war and the other one was when he was running a clinic in seattle and throughout, you know, somewhere along the lines, he kind of switched identities. But, hey, look, it's really the same person. He's got this scar and all this kind of stuff. I kind of would have liked it better if, to your point, 
yeah, he showed up because it's weird too, because he, he seems completely out of touch as well. Like when Kolchak is like, oh yeah, I came in through your clinic and he's like, what clinic? I don't have a clinic. And I was like, what? How are you getting downstairs, man? Right. You should know this stuff. You should know that there's a clinic with your name on it right above where you're at in here. I mean, yeah, it's kind of creepy that you're there having dinner with your dead family and talking to them and your stuffed dog and all that. But yeah, you probably should be a little bit more lucid at this point. Yeah, it just for me, again, his character, such a wasted opportunity for them to like do something interesting Give us a give us a villain that is actually there are some stakes to what he's doing. And he's actually like a menacing villain. He's just like a dude in a suit who kills himself on top of everything else. He kills himself. I just figured he would just disintegrate into like a pile of bones anyways. Oh, yeah. Do that stop motion animation from The Last Crusade. That's what that's what I was looking for with the one of my favorite stages of the disintegration, which is ground beef face. But no, he just looks like Mudface. He's Clayface from Batman the Animated Series. That's what it is. And then he kills himself. That's the other problem with this whole episode is they have a – I feel like unlike the vampire in the first episode, it's not as easy for them to deny that that's Richard Malcolm or Dr. Malcolm. It's like it, there's a body. It looks just like him. The vampire kind of like charred up a little bit. Well, yeah, and that was the thing, too, is that the cops are, towards the end, they're kind of admitting, yes, there is a vampire, but it never seems like anybody is willing to admit, yes, there's this guy who has a, you know, a life-extending potion. And then, of course, Kolchak destroyed it, so... Right. That's one of the things is like that corpse. I'm sure that the cops really couldn't deny it, but nobody ever says to Kolchak, yes, we believe you, or like gives any indication you know, because they do give that indication in the Night Stalker that, okay, you know, we'll arm the guys with stakes and holy water and stuff. I would think it'd be easier to buy into the idea of this guy's been alive since the Civil War. Easier to buy that than there's a vampire who traveled over from Europe 200 years ago. Yeah, I agree. Just because one carries a whole lot of voodoo bullshit with it. And the other and the other is just uh, science gone awry. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Amanda Reyes, the editor of Are You in the House Alone, a TV movie compendium, and we'll be back with that right after these messages. My name is Amanda Reyes, and uh, actually by day I'm an archivist. Uh, I just got my master's last year, and I just started my first job in an archive where I'm not an intern, so that's what I do in the day. Uh, I also am a freelance writer, but mostly I write about TV movies. I used to write a lot about slasher films. That's how I got started. I wrote for Retro Slashers, which is a very popular website. I wrote for Film Threat and some local papers when I lived in Los Angeles, and then I kind of started veering away from that because there was so much content. It was really hard to keep up with it while I was working full time. I had written an article for a fanzine called Debaser years ago, and I wrote about TV movies. And while I was writing the article, I was discovering or rediscovering all these movies that I remember from my childhood. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Eddie Brandt's Saturday Matinee in Los Angeles, but they have access to a lot of TV movies. So in the early 2000s, I started going there 
constantly getting my hands on as many movies as I could and discovering a lot of movies I didn't get to see as a kid, but also revisiting movies that I loved, like Scream Pretty Peggy, which is one that I had thought was actually two different films, and I was matching them together. Um, that was one I remember. I had not seen, I had seen Bad Ronald as an adult, but it was really hard to get later on, and so I was able to rewatch that. And so I decided, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, that maybe I would just concentrate on TV movies and start a blog, and my blog is made for TV mayhem, and for the last 10 years, it's been my one-stop shop for all things small screen. I'm curious, what kind of archivist are you? Well, right now I'm working at a, a, like a humanities archive. So I actually work at an archive that specializes in film, theater, all kinds of performing arts and literature. They were, they started off as a literature archive, but they've branched off and it's huge. It's probably one of the biggest archives in that concentration and what I do right now is I'm, because I'm at kind of the bottom level, I'm assisting in a grant project and we're working on theater arts. And they don't want me to say too much because they want to release the information themselves. But I'm working on three really, really interesting archives that span the last hundred years of like theater. So you could really kind of empathize with the Wally Cox character from The Night Strangler. Yeah, you know what? I'm really interested in old school research, and I think that they did a really good job capturing the archivist. Now, there's a lot of stereotypes about librarians and arch- archivists, and one of the big ones, I think, that always makes me laugh is the, the character in It's a Wonderful Life, the wife, and when they go back, and like, what would happen if Jimmy Stewart had never been and she ends up becoming a librarian. And it's like the most horrifying thing that's ever happened because being a librarian means being a spinster. And there's a big stereotype about that. And with archives, uh, there's there's a lot of, it's kind of an enigmatic profession. Like even me explaining what I do see, is hard for me. And so it's hard to portray them. But they do a lot of interesting research in uh, TV movies. And actually, while I was watching The Night Strangler, Wally Cox is a great character. And I think you never really know exactly what's in your archives. He seemed to know everything right at the top of your head. But you do become a sponge for a lot of information. But there's also a movie called Battles, The Murder That Wouldn't Die, with uh, the guy who played Cannon. It was a pilot movie by Glenn A. Larson. And they the archives actually get destroyed in the film. So they have to do, they have to create like an oral history of this murder that happened. And it's really interesting the way they portray how you do oral histories. And they also find people with old newspapers and they research the papers. And yeah, I'm really fascinated by like how they portrayed the act of research in films. And I think they did a pretty good job with this. Like Kolchak didn't want to do the research. You could tell, but he kind of gets caught up in it. And Wally Cox makes it seem kind of romantic in a way in like the way his office is with all the books and the journals. You're an archivist during the day, but then it seems like you're kind of an archivist in your fun time too. The word historian and archivist gets thrown on a lot and I get really sensitive to it because collecting stuff is great. And I know I have a lot of friends who are collectors. You're not necessarily an archivist. And I think I'm more of a historian in that, well, when I first started my blog, I was just really writing reviews like, Bad Ronald is good. Scott Jacoby is cute. You know, and that was my whole review. And now I try to like really dig into, now that I have access to like uh, more historical documents, because I work at a university. I like to write about production history, if I can find it, uh, quotes from critics, uh, Nielsen ratings, which are really hard to access, it turns out, um, and things like that. And so I find now as I progress, if I have access to historical artifacts, I guess, or historical historical factoids to share with people, I try to do that more. So yeah, it's kind of like I, was, I wasn't into history at all growing up, but it's in my blood now. I love it. So Amanda, how did you come to start the Made for TV Mayhem podcast? 
I don't know if you're familiar with Bleeding Skull, but one of my podcasting partners is Dan Budnick. And he actually contacted me through Twitter because he'd written an article about Happy Days and he wanted me to proof it for him, which was weird because we'd never spoken before that. Not weird, uh, weird in a good way. And I was really excited because I'm a huge fan of Bleeding Skull. And so we started talking. It turned out we had a, a lot of love for classic television, although he and he knows his TV movies, but like he hadn't seen as many as I had. And so we kind of got on the subject and he had sort of brought up the idea of a podcast and I think intentionally he meant just for me to do it and roll with it and see what happens but I felt like he was such a good companion because we were getting along really well online and um, he actually had joined me on a I do a horror podcast called Podcast Mania um, which is a round table of just a bunch of people and we get drunk and talk about horror movies and and I brought him on there and so it turned out we had a lot of chemistry together so I wanted to to do something with him because I felt like it would be good to have somebody to talk to. And I wanted to branch out because, you know, when you're writing about movies, um, and I don't know how well you know the blog sphere, but it's not as, like, I get more hits than ever now. So it's not that people aren't reading my stuff, but I'm not getting as many comments. And so originally I... I branched out onto Twitter and to Facebook because I like the interaction of it and I like the community feeling of it. And I wasn't getting that on my blog. So I liked the idea of having somebody to talk to. And so I also have a really good friend named Nate who's on a podcast called The Hysteria Continues, which is a slasher podcast. And it's amazing. And I've known Nate for years. And he loves TV movies too, but he's uh, much younger than me. And so he kind of grew up with like the Tori Spelling, Shannon Doherty 90s TV movies. And I thought it would be great to bring him on. And he's also seen a lot of the classics, but it, it was sort of like a different perspective. And uh, also he's really, one thing I will say, there's a lot of people who love TV movies and a lot of people who've reached out to me, but there's also a lot of disdain for TV movies. And so it was important to me that I be with people who really understood that TV movies are their own medium and they should be viewed differently. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to do that, but when I'm on my podcast, I feel it's important for me to have cultural context and to understand how low budget these films are, how quickly they were made, especially in the 70s. If I'm correct, I actually got to meet Gordon Hessler, who directed Screen Pretty Peggy, and uh, I think he told me they they made uh, that film in like five days total, like the shooting of it. And some movies were written in less than two weeks and it was a factory, but in that factory, there was an art form. And so, I mean, Dan Curtis is such a good like springboard for that because he was really good at what he did, but he also worked with a lot of people who you can discover other works to them. So like the Night Stalker was directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, who did um, so many TV movies and he's just amazing. And so I kind of wanted to be able to talk about these people off the cuff, like I am now where I'm coming up with these names and, and um, ideas and movies that I like and just have somebody to bounce them off of and maybe build a a bigger community that way. And also bring in some other people I knew really loved uh, the genre. So it just kind of came out of a, a next step really was what it was. It's funny. You bring up Gordon Hessler and you talk about Scream Pretty Peggy. And of course, my mind immediately goes to Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Oh, so good, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then he even did a Night Stalker episode. He did the Spanish Moss Murders. Oh, you know, that's the one I remember from my childhood. You know, it was so funny. We did a we did a Night Stalker Norless Tapes episode and I was going through and I've seen the Night Stalker TV series, but I, I don't have as strong of a memory of it as I would like. And but that Spanish moss monster really stuck out in my head. And and that's interesting. I, I don't think I realized that he directed it. And it's interesting that I didn't realize that I had I didn't think I saw the Night Stalker till I was older. So one thing about TV movies is I was too young to watch them when they originally aired the ones from the 70s. Now, I 
I was alive, but I was like one or two years old when they aired. And then it really depended on if the programmer in my town was going to play those movies. So there were a lot of movies I didn't see growing up that a lot of my friends saw. And then there were movies that I saw that my friends have no idea about. TV movies are really interesting because they're one-offs and they're meant to be events that you might not get to see this again, so watch it tonight. And and they just kind of came and went. I was watching The Night Stalker and uh, when I revisited it, and I remembered the ending so well, I just had no idea that it was in that film. And so it was. it's kind of funny, the memories that arise from that. Now, when I think of TV movies, or when I used to think of TV movies, I used to think of things like Meredith Baxter Burney getting sick. You know, it just seemed like she was constantly either sick or in peril. It seemed like all the time. But it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the name of your your upcoming book is Are You in the House Alone? A TV movie compendium, 1964 to 1999. Quite a mouthful, but Are You in the House Alone? I'm guessing that you're leaning less towards the disease of the week films and much more towards the horror films. We are. So Ahead Press is a British publisher, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with them, but they deal with a lot of subculture topics. And they actually came up with the idea for the book before I even came on. So I'm not really sure how it came about, but it was it's interesting. Uh, and I can talk about, I went to Australia a couple months ago and I actually was on a panel about TV movies. So I can sort of talk about the foreign reception of them, but um, they seem to be taken differently in other countries, maybe because some of them came out as theatricals or they played on TV as not TV movies, but movies from America. And so people sort of receive them differently. So he was interested in writing about them. And then he contacted me because he had been looking for submissions and a couple of people had actually recommended me because of my blog. So he dropped me a line and we started talking about what kind of book he wanted. The book has been years in the making. It took a few years to put this all together. He had a really great group of writers and they were submitting basically what they could find. In my mind, when he said subculture, I was thinking strictly horror. And I'd say it's about 85% that. Um, There's a lot of like B-movie stuff that falls in there. I wrote an essay about women in prison and things like that. But there's stuff in there also like the cable remake of 12 Angry Men. You know what I mean? Like something I would never have considered or Escape from Sobibor, which is about like, you know, World War II. It was really interesting. And I didn't want to take anything out, but we were trying to like narrow our focus. And also what's interesting is we were just letting people submit whatever they wanted, which happened the whole process. But then we came up with a list of things that we really wanted or needed in the book. And most of it was horror. Like I was really interested in what people had not submitted. Like that nobody had offered to write a review of Duel. And I think Trilogy of Terror wasn't in there. And a couple of other like really big movies, Satan School for Girls, you know, stuff people, everybody kind of has a memory of. And so we, we kind of refocused it, but we left the other titles. And so we used the word compendium because we tried our best to fit in as much as we could with what, what we had and the access we had, which was not always as great as I would like it to be. There's about 250 titles in there, I think. It's, it's pretty good. It's about 70% reviews and 30% essays. And the essays, I think, are predominantly horror and or subgenre related, like neo-noirs are in there. There's a really interesting essay from Jennifer Wallace about rape in TV movies. So I think it's called Rape, Revenge, Rape, Response. And TV movies were actually very, uh, they were a great stepping stone for women in terms of getting their stories out there because the Nielsen's had market had decided women were the people to market to because they were the biggest consumer of the household. And so a lot of TV movies like Case of Rape, um, She Cried Rape, um, Revenge for Rape, a lot of movies with rape and sound, Revenge for Rape came out and, and they were meant to sort of 
explore these topics that weren't being explored in other places, featuring great actresses like Elizabeth Montgomery. Um, the Violation of Sarah McDavid has Patty Duke in it. And and there was also, of course, The Burning Bed, you know, with Farrah Fawcett. And so it was actually the first time that women really had their, their voices and their stories out there. So a lot of those are in there as well. I remember being traumatized by a lot of made-for-TV movies. Like, wasn't, was it called Born Innocent? Yeah, we just did a podcast episode on that. Yeah, we just rewatched that. Um, my partner Dan had never seen it before, and he's never going to see it again, was what he told me. <laughs> it's a tough movie. It's really good. I mean, it's a great, great film. And uh, we were talking about how all these years later, it's still shocking, which is a testament to how good the film is. Um, and it's not shocking in a gratuitous manner at all. I mean, it's just straightforward. Oh, my God, I feel like this could happen to some girl at some point. And it's it's a really tough watch. And we don't normally pick those movies for our show, but it's a classic. And I'm trying to do one classic with one kind of relatively obscure film. So we did Born Innocent with something called Women in Chains with Ida Lupino. And it was actually, when it came out, the only films to best it in the ratings was The Night Stalker and A Case of Rape. And it, up to 1989, it was in the top 20 highest rated movies of all time. I'm surprised that you said that the Nielsen ratings are difficult to find. I mean, I have memories of seeing what ranked well the previous week, but then that was only usually like the top 10. Are you are you saying that the ones that are deeper down in the list are tougher to find? I'm saying I can't find, I use news, I use like Google newspaper archives and I, I now I'm, now I've got the university library. So I'm starting to dig into their archives and I'm getting better numbers, but it's hard to find uh, newspapers that first of all do have every movie or ep tv program listed for the week there's like 60 shows or whatever they used to have and it's hard to find them in google's archive new google news archive and have them be consistent so like i might be able to pull up one week but then if i go to look at the next week in that same newspaper they won't have been scanned in so i can't get that list and also google news archive has changed their search engine which has been really controversial for like the last few years they've they kind of like they used to have a much better search engine and I think maybe they thought they were spending too much money on it. So they kind of pulled it back and then it got harder to get in there and like find things. I actually had to, for a while I used to be able to just put in, um, and it's weird because they scan them and they put in the ability to read the words, but then they kind of pulled back on, on letting you be able to do that. So at one point I went in and I couldn't find anything. So I start, I had to start going back and thinking about, well, what were the top 10 shows in 1983? Well, Happy Days. And then I had to put in Happy Days and Nielsen and then try to find the dates available. Yeah, so it became really... And now they won't let you search anything after a certain date. I think like 1970 or something. Like you can go in and access the papers, but the search engine doesn't really work. So it became really frustrating for me. And I tried to create a a nielsen chart but it's one of those things i can only do when i have time and you know i just haven't been able to do it to the to the point i'm happy with it so the night stalker and the night strangler i mean that you could say that those were pilots for a television series which isn't necessarily 100 percent true but how often do you think and you don't have to use accurate numbers because this is just a swag but how often do you think that some of these tv movies were pilots or backdoor pilots for series i think they, that was pretty common i know that the first tv movie pilot 
was a f- movie. It was fa- the fame is the name of the game. And then I think fame is the name of the game is uh, was the series short lived series afterwards. And I think that when networks were looking at making TV movies, I mean, it was a really expensive venture. I remember reading in the TV ABC movie, the week companion, which is a really great book The ABC networks put out ads about how expensive production was going to be. And I think one way to make it palpable to the executives was to say that maybe they could spin it off into a real good money-making machine, you know? So let's try uh, to see if we can grab these shows, these movies that could be potentially turned into something else. Sometimes you watch things and you just kind of get the idea that they might've been a pilot, but there's no proof of it. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen Where Have All the People Gone? with Peter Graves. Yeah. Do you know, it feels kind of like a pilot, right? Cause it sort of ends with them on the beach and they don't know what's happened to everybody. So the, the whole crux of the movie is that there's like a solar flare and Peter Graves and his kids are in this cave. I don't know, spelunking or whatever you do in a cave and they come out and everybody's gone and they've turned to dust or whatever. And they go to town and there's all this stuff happening. Like there's, I, I feel like there's more survivors, but there's also these dogs that have gone wild and it has this kind of enigmatic ending on a beach and so you get the idea that that maybe they were going to explore the country more, but there's no proof that that was ever a pilot movie. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was some like, hey, if this works out, maybe we could think about expanding on it, you know. And then there were just the straight up pilots, which uh, would be something like I'm thinking of A Double Life with Dak Rambo. A lot of the ones that make no sense. What was the one? Oh, I can't remember the name. He was the magician. And Robert Reed played the bad guy. I hate when I can't remember the names of movies. It was famous. It was from a comic. It was like The Magician. Oh, Mandrake? Yeah, you know, that was a pilot. And, you know, they don't make any sense. It's like they try to throw so much into the pot. But they're fun to watch. But um, there's a lot of those where I'm watching them and I'm like, 20 minutes in, I'm like, I have no idea what's just happened. Baffled, I think, was meant to be a pilot with with, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Nordless Tapes definitely feels like that was a pilot for something just because of the way that it ends with here's tape two dot, dot, dot. Well, you know, they did write a sequel was a prequel. And so, yeah, I think that they intended the Norless tapes to be longer running than it was. And I don't know why it didn't. I mean, I kind of get it. It's so different from the night stalker, even though it's so much the same, but honestly, I prefer the Norless tapes over all of them. And I know that that's like blasphemy that I'm saying that. And some of it's because I love Roy Thinnis. Like I love Roy Thinnis. But I think that that movie, uh, I like comedy and horror, but I think uh, the Norless tapes, for as much as everybody hates Norless for not being funny, I appreciate the real straight face nature of that film because it's kind of ridiculous. And I know you guys will talk about it at some point, but but they do it with such a straight face that it's hard not to buy the craziness of it. I really like movies like that. Like, um, there's another movie called uh, Terror at London Bridge with David Hasselhoff. William F. Nolan wrote it. I really like that movie. And it's ridiculous. It's about how Jack the Ripper comes back 100 years later to Arizona because the Arizona Bridge, you know, the the bridge, the London Bridge has been moved to Arizona. And so apparently the essence of Jack the Ripper is in the bridge because he died there or something. And he comes back and he's stalking like Adrian Barbeau and Stephanie Kramer from Hunter. And I mean, it's a, it's it's an outlandish movie, but the way it's written, it's so genuine in its approach. And David Hasselhoff is so genuine in his performance that I kind of really get caught up in it, even though I think a lot of people are like, what is going on? You talked about the use of the Nielsen's and, and Nielsen ratings uh, kind of... Uh marketing towards women at a certain point was there a a a real point where that happened could you tell where that shift happened or was it more of a gradual thing 
I feel like it happened right off the bat. I mean, pretty early on, I think TV movies were playing to women. There were a lot of women in leading roles. And it wasn't just domestic abuse and things like that. It was movies like Scream Pretty Peggy and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Like those movies spoke to feminism in uh, very subliminal ways, kind of brilliantly, metaphorically. So it's more overt in Scream Pretty Peggy because she's supposed to be sort of like a more confident young woman who like sort of goes on a Scooby-Doo mystery and she demands more money when they try to hire her. And, but then there's all the, there's always problems with those characters too, because she really wants to, to be with Ted Bessel. So there's this idea that she can be independent to a point. Don't be afraid of the dark. Uh, one of the best TV movies, as far as I'm concerned, is really kind of about, uh, it's like the yellow wallpaper for housewives. It's like what happens when you're stuck in like just a house all the time and sort of like this hysteria sets in her. That's how they treat it. Right. Because she's a woman. So she must be hysterical. She can't possibly have seen what she says she saw those films uh, as well as something like a case of rape are all kind of speaking to women in ways that films had not yet at that point, you know? So, so I think it happened early on. I think it became more, Overt later on, when you're talking about like the Meredith Baxter Bernie movies, I mean, she made her whole, I mean, she was on Family Ties, but everybody remembers her for playing Betty Broderick, Betty Broderick in A Woman Scorned and all those, you know, the sequel to that. And of course, there was all the movies in the 90s, like I said, with Tori Spelling and uh, Shannon Doherty and uh, Kelly Martin. They, but they sort of became less wrapped up in metaphors and or truly dealing with women's issues instead they had women in the leads which is still really good they still were putting the weight of the film on the women's shoulders and so they're still important in a way but i i think that the films in the 70s are fascinating in how they approached um feminism and women's issues especially the horror films i mean those are the two that come to mind first but there's a lot of them and then there were other movies like um let's switch had barbara felden i want to say barbara eden and one of them is a you know she runs a magazine and the other one is a housewife and they switch places and they find out what it's like to live in each other's shoes and they both come to realize that both ways is difficult uh that's a really good one then there was a movie i haven't seen yet with farrah fawcett called the feminine and the fuzz that sounds amazing and i talk about it all the time i really need to see it and so there was a lot of stuff like that and there was also movies like five desperate women which is a proto slasher and home for the holidays and and those are all about like women they're just women taking over these films and and integral and having relationships with each other real solid relationships whether they be dysfunctional or not but things that women can relate to and so yeah i, I see it right off the bat it's interesting you say that because even when uh, I'm looking at something like Death Car on the Freeway, where the women who are on their way to their jobs are the ones who are attacked by this unknown, faceless, presumably male ki- uh, killer on the road, and it's you know so it's almost like a message of you know women shouldn't be leaving the house, but then they turn it around by defeating that guy. So I was like, okay, that that's kind of a nice thing to do. Yeah, you know what? The, there's a review in the book um, written by who did the the rape revenge rape response essay where she wrote that exact thing, and I had never really viewed the film that way. Now I kind of saw it as feminist because the uh, Shelley Hack who who stars in it is you know she's dating George Hamilton in the in the uh, movie, and she wants to sort of be independent. So he and he's just dying for her to like come back to him, and there's a lot of stuff uh, going on between them. And so and she reminded me very much of Olivia Hussey's character in Black Christmas. And so I always kind of had viewed it that way, but I wasn't looking at the metaphors as deeply till I read that review. So it's interesting that you tapped into that immediately 
in the conversation because you can see where it's there now. And it's so fascinating, you know, that it's that it does exist in that way. You mentioned Duel before, and Duel was one of those that a lot of people remember as being a TV movie that actually played theatrically. And I know there were others of those, like uh, Don Siegel's The Killers. I don't know if that ever played television. I think it was deemed too violent. How often was it that, not necessarily the the Don Siegel case, but how often would TV movies make that break and play on, on the big screen? Well, I know Salem's Lot did. I I don't know of many in this country. Those are the two that I can think of offhand. I'm sure there must be more if it's popular enough. Um, they will, but all throughout Europe, all kinds of TV movies played. So recently here in Austin, um, they at the Alamo Draft House, you know, they have a thing called Terror Tuesdays, and run by the other guy who uh, runs Bleeding Skull. Actually, the guy who created Bleeding Skull, Jeff uh, Joe Zaimba, and he showed a. I guess a 35 millimeter print of gargoyles that he got from Europe, I think. Wow. Yeah. And I actually saw Terra London bridge at the new Beverly in Los Angeles on 35 because it played in Europe. So they exist. I don't know where they aired or why. And then of course there's what's that Linda Blair movie, summer fear, AKA stranger in our house, the West Craven movie that played in Europe as well. Theatrically their, their market there was, was much bigger. I can only think of a Salem's lot right now in dual here. When they would put these things out, were they, and I know this is a real techie question, so if you don't have an answer, that's absolutely fine, but when they're shipping the movies to the local stations, are they shipping them on, what, one-inch videotape, or are they actually sending film reels? You know, I don't know that. Uh, I always assumed in the 70s it was like 16-millimeter prints, because there's all kinds of 16-millimeter prints floating around, and I'm assuming that's what they were originally for. Like, my husband just picked up The Eyes of Charles Sand, which is amazing, because it was on eBay for, like, well over $100 years ago, and he bought it for, like, 20 bucks, I think. But, um... That's how I originally envisioned it. I don't know, though, to be honest with you. You said that you're married? Mm -hmm, Yes. But you're an archivist. I know. Can you believe it? I'm not a spinster. Whoa. (laughs) That's kind of crazy. Do you wear glasses? Have your hair up in a bun? I don't. I really want glasses. I want the big Brett Summer glasses for Match Game. But uh, I love them. But I I actually have 20-20 eyesight, and it really bothers me. (laughs) Well, you just wear plain old glass. I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Oh my God. Her <laughs> glasses were amazing. Yeah, they were. She was amazing. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm a child of the seventies, but like I look at Brett Summers now, I'm sure when I was watching a match game, when I was like six, I was thinking, wow, she's so much older than me. But now that I'm in my forties and stuff, I'm like looking at her and on thinking that's where I want to be in 10 years. <laughs> I'm going to do it. So it sounds like there were a couple tracks here as far as the movies that we're left with today so like the lifetime movies the hallmark channel movies it sounds like those really came out of the more feminist tract of the films but there still are the killer movies i mean i remember a few years ago there being the um not necessarily horror but more, i guess more slasher but like the the craigslist killer oh, yeah and the one about the the fashion designer i'm, I'm gianni versace so oh, yeah there's it's still it still seems like they're making horror-ish movies, but I would say more in the slasher vein. Nothing is, to me, as supernatural as, you know, what we've talked about with the Norlis tapes and Kolchak and, and, you know, even Quester is more sci-fi, but it doesn't seem like they're more in the genre of horror and sci-fi films anymore. 
Or am I completely wrong? No, I think you're right. That's an interesting point because I'm really interested in the supernatural in TV movies. But you're right. There's not a huge amount of it anymore. There was a movie that Sarah Chalk made. Oh, gosh, a long time ago now. It seems ancient, like 1999. I think it's called I'm Waiting for You or something like that. That I think might have been leaning towards that. And then in the early 2000s, they had a really weird surgence of remaking TV movies for television. So they did a remake of Saints School for Girls. Aaron Spelling produced it. I think it's one of the last things he did um, with Shannon Doherty. And it was basically charmed. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And they also remade The Initiation of Sarah. Got Joanna Garcia, and I can't remember the other actors, which was quite good too. Morgan Fairchild reprises her role. Well, it doesn't reprise her role, but she comes back for the sequel and or remake. But there's not a lot of that. But I will tell you, I'm I'm a huge slasher fan, and I, I used to read a lot of true crime. I don't so much now that I live in the real world. Uh, I don't like it as much. But I think that for years, and this is a whole separate conversation in a way, but I think for years before the internet, um, horror was seen as a boys club. And it's one of the things I admire about the projection booth is that there's a lot of women on there. And I don't think people realized for a long time that there was a a black audience, a female audience, or a gay audience. And I think that the internet has allowed people to make connections with each other and, and to see that there are interests. I can't believe for years, I was the only girl I knew who really liked slashers as much as I did, but I go online now and I have, I know all kinds of people that I've met because I have Facebook or Twitter. And I've noticed that there's also subsex, you know, minorities, uh, gay people in particular have a pretty, a strong voice now about their love of, of slashers and classic horror. And so I feel like TV, like everybody else that didn't realize it was, is catching up to how women enjoy watching these kinds of films. Now there's also definitely a sense of realism to it too. And this is another thing I feel that horror, I feel like, and not all women uh, will probably agree with me, but I do feel like women tap into horror um, because it's different to be a woman and live in the world. And I think that uh, different kinds of horror speaks to that, whether like a movie like Maniac certainly speaks to that. Um, Maybe in a very negative way for some people, for me, it's positive. It's like a venting machine for me. It's like, this could happen. And it allows you to sort of live through that fear because that fear exists in our everyday life. And some men, I'm sure they live through that as well, but not to the extent that a woman grows up with this idea that she's more likely to be assaulted and or murdered. Do you know what I mean? So I think, um, I think TV just caught up with the world the way I know you could argue that slasher films were already, uh, privy to that, but there's also like, the way slasher films end, and I guess the way a lot of these Lifetime movies end, can be seen as really negative. And it's interesting that nobody really talks about it, but it's like, yeah, she survives, but what's left at the end? Nothing. You know, she loses everything in the process. So in a lot of ways, there's still an, a negative tone to them. But I think with true crime, there's a lot of layers working inside of people. It's it's So they're female-centric in a way, and they're dealing with issues that women deal with every day, whether they realize it or not. It's saying things to them, especially if the woman is the survivor at the end, that they can make it through it. When it comes to where people are able to see these things, you talked about Eddie Brand's Saturday Matinee, which came up a few episodes of The Projection Booth ago when we were talking about westerns and um, spaghetti westerns, because he seem to have a huge collection of those at the store i'm curious though is that still the best way to find them or have 
things like YouTube kind of opened it up for other uh, means to, to see these television movies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I gave a presentation at my job yesterday because I donated a copy of my book to their to the library there, which was super exciting. And so they asked me to talk to my department about the book. And somebody asked me how many TV movies are still lost because I talked a lot about how I, I'm really interested in lost films and I see TV as a, a lost, all of them, you know, they're just so, they seem so lost. Like that woman in chains movie, like how could that be the top in the top three TV movies all through like the seventies, but nobody's seen it. Nobody remembers it. Right. So, and I couldn't give him an answer as to how many movies there are that are just gone. There's a, well over 5,000 TV movies, well over. And I would say, I feel like just such a small percentage of them is available legitimately. So I worked for a labor an entertainment labor union for years and I got real sensitive to illegal downloads and uh, pirating and things like that. But at the same time, if a movie, if a studio is not going to make a movie available, it's not fair to put this pressure on somebody like YouTube to not show them. So I do think YouTube has turned out, and I don't think they're getting a lot of pressure. It's Google, you know, they're like, whatever. I feel like they've opened up the door a lot. Uh, So for instance, I don't necessarily like promoting movies that are on YouTube, but there's this TV movie with Carol Lindley and uh, Shirley Booth who played Hazel and it's called the smugglers. And I think it aired the night that they landed on the moon. So it got preempted and they never, ever re-aired it. And so there was never, nobody had ever seen the full version of that movie. It's on YouTube. It showed up like a month ago. Yeah, I died. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I, I've had my eye on that film for a long time because I read that trivia and I was like, oh my God, I'd love to see the whole thing. And I felt really bad for Shirley Booth because I think it was the only TV movie she ever made. And it was like, wow, nobody's ever really seen it. So yeah, YouTube has opened the doors. Now, I think people like Shout Factory, they have a streaming site. They're streaming Born Innocent and Gargoyles right now. And they have tried to release some TV movies on DVD. Uh, they released Are You in the House Alone? What was the other one? Initiation of Sarah. Now, if I'm correct, the sales weren't so great. And I think that they're not considering too many more of those. But they're, I think they're looking into streaming and seeing what they can do. And I spoke to somebody at Universal Um who said that they would? They are actually looking at putting TV movies back on television. I mean, the old classics. They were just looking for what the right venue would be, and that was a couple of years ago, though. So I don't know what happened with that. So there are legitimate sources, but like, so Eddie Brandt's had the movies illegally. Like, so you couldn't rent them. What you could do is they had what's called a loaner list. And the loaner list is just all these movies that people donate that are usually just taped off television. And you rent for every movie you rent, you can ask for a movie on the loaner list. And they make no money doing it. They just do it that way because it's illegal to do it any other way. And they have like hundreds of movies. If you live in L.A., that's a really great resource. And they probably have stuff that's not on YouTube. But I do think if you're savvy enough, um, some people will put YouTube things up on YouTube in code. So they'll change the titles a little so that you can't back into them. And I've had to do some hardcore searching to find things, but it's, you can get there. What are some of the lost movies that you've been dying to see? Oh, you know, there's a movie, it's called The Return. It's a remake of the best years of our lives. It stars uh, Joni from Eight is Enough. And I don't, and I think they actually found a male actor who was missing both of his uh, hands to play the same character. I would love to see it. It's so funny. I brought that movie up to a friend of mine who loves the best years of our lives and he hates remakes. He got so mad that I even thought about it, but that's the one that instantly comes to mind. Um, for years now it's available, but for years, uh, 
I wanted to see Vampire with Richard Lynch. I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but it was something I loved as a kid. Some other movies I was looking for, this is kind of branching off into TV series, but there was a novella series in the early 80s called Romance Theater, which I actually write about a little bit in the book. It's like, it's just really weird. It was like a soap opera they had in the afternoon syndicated. So a local channel would air it. And every week was a different story. They ran for two seasons and they released several of them on VHS. And, and at the time, and Louis Jordan hosted them. It was amazing. And uh, at the time, the videos were hugely popular. It was like when home movies first came out and it was like nobody really realized how much potential the market had and they only released a certain number of them and so a lot of them never came out and uh, there's a couple of them I'm looking for I know one stars Eric McCook but I can't I can't remember the name of it now like Awake to Love or something crazy like that so stuff like that as I'm always looking for you know old romance movies nobody takes romance movies seriously on uh, tv movies so those are harder to find i think but those are just a few of them that i can think of offhand that i've been looking for but the return that just came up in my head just recently i really wanted to see it and um i was thinking god i wish i was available somewhere dead center pretty much yeah right there where i go is looking at the cover of are you in the house alone is tim curry from it yeah did you have to have some sort of like rules as far as you can write about miniseries versus TV movies. I mean, some people might get on your case of like, well, no, that was a multi-night thing. Are, are people that crazy when it comes to like the rules of what a TV movie is? You know what? I'm that crazy, but it's interesting that you brought that up. So what happened was when I came on, some people had already submitted stuff and there were some miniseries already in the mix. And I was thinking, well, that's not a TV movie. And so what I did was, we split up the review section when we have a very small section dedicated to a handful of miniseries, um, some that had already been submitted. Uh, and then a few that I thought should be in there, like uh, fatal vision with uh, Gary Cole and um, oh my God, I can't remember. And Carl Malden. So good. And Goliath awaits, which is just a movie I wanted to write about. Cause I think it's amazing. And dark secret of harvest home. We were also collecting essays and a friend of mine, Lance from kinder trauma. I don't know if you're familiar with that website, but it's amazing. And he wrote an essay on Stephen King. The thing is, is he tried to cram in as much Stephen King as he could. And you can't really do that in 2000 words because he had a super, prolific tv movie life and tv miniseries life so what we did was we decided to use that essay as a springboard to a stephen king section and then in there i let people write about tv movies and miniseries just whatever stephen king had done that wasn't like a series you know like i'm trying to think there's one that i think is more like a limited series than a miniseries we did uh golden years i remember yeah and i, I can't remember now if that's in the book i hate that i can't remember that it makes me feel so bad but but we did all like the langoliers is in there and uh it obviously um shining remake is in there and so there's a whole section it's one of my favorite sections because i have to admit i'm not a huge fan of stephen king adaptations but i think that they're important because there's so many of them and because they do have a following and I mean, people love them and or love to hate them. The stand is obviously in there. And so I felt like this was a nice place to give Stephen King a space for his TV movies. And we got some really, really good reviews uh, from a few different writers. The other place of prominence where my eye goes when I look at your cover is of our hero, Carl Kolchak. 
What is Kolchak's appearance in the book like? He has two reviews written by a guy named Thomas Scalzo, and they're so good. There, he's just in the capsule reviews. He's a little bit in the introduction because, you know, The Night Stalker was like the highest rated TV movie for a while. And I think it's still in the top 20, maybe. So he adds a little cultural context to it. Also, the introduction, it was a good way to sort of discuss Dan Curtis, who did so much for the TV movie as well. And also Richard Matheson, John Willem Moxie. Um, those were all names I wanted to throw into the introduction, and he was kind of a springboard for that. And I'm curious, we're talking about the Night Strangler on this episode. Do you like the Night Strangler or the Night Stalker more? I like the Night Strangler. You know what? I, you know, I was just talking about how I like comedy and horror, but not necessarily as much as straight face horror. But I think Night Strangler has more comedy, but it works for me. And maybe that just comes from, and I always have to say her name this way, so forgive me. Uh, but I love Joanne Pflug. You know, and and she's I love Carol Lindley. I love Carol Lindley. I really do. I think she's so beautiful and talented, but she's not really given much to do in The Night Stalker. And that's unfortunate. But I feel like Joanne Pflug has is so vital and so important to The Night Strangler. And I like having that female character in there getting in the mix. And uh, it's always interesting. So I listened to your interview with Tom Atkins and he was talking about, uh, I don't remember what movie it was. I think it was actually talking about Night of the Creeps. And he was talking about all the young women on the campus. And he said, but they're not for me. But, you know, Tom Atkins always ended up with women like half his age. And so did Darren McGavin. And, you know, it works for me. I don't necessarily see a problem with Darren McGavin, the grizzled straw hat, disheveled McGavin with these really beautiful younger women because I get it when I see Darren McGavin as Kolchak. He's a mess. But there's something about him that's very appealing to me. And I, hopefully I'm not the only woman that feels that way. Maybe there's a lot of women listening now going, what is she talking about? But um, but unfortunately, with the way they wrote Carol Lindley, she's just sort of there. And, but the way they wrote Jampel Flug, they sort of um, they created a more fleshed out character. And she's so much fun. And she's funny. And then there's that great, really strange um, lesbian subplot story with Charisma Beauty and her girlfriend and or husband, I guess. I really like that. The And I can't remember the character's name that plays the husband, but she's always giving Carl Kolchak the eye because he really likes Charisma Beauty. And there's just it's just it works. And also that's fairly progressive for 1973 or four, whenever that came out. It's like to have that in there. And I don't know if it's actually I don't know if you guys are going to discuss the 74 minute version versus the 90 minute version. But there's a lot of talk about what was added for the Night Night Strangler later. And I don't know what that was, but somebody had in a local newspaper, I can't remember what paper it was, they had sort of uh, hypothesized that it was was a lot of the lesbian storyline, which isn't in there that much, but enough that I feel like it stands out for that era. Tell me about your upcoming appearance at Miskatonic Institute. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to be in London, April 20th at a, at a place called the horse hospital doing a thing called the Miskatonic Institute of horror studies, which is like this program that Kayla Janice, I'm assuming you guys are familiar with her puts on all over the world. She has them in Canada. I think she's doing them in New York. That's pretty new. The New York shows and in London and they're like done by semesters 
And so people come in and they have like these sort of academic light discussions about different topics. I think they just did auspitation this week. They opened up this semester and you go for a semester and you get like a certificate or you, you know, or something like that. It's real cheap to get into. It's like 10 pounds. And so uh, she had conscious, so she's in my book. I met her that way. And she actually used to be a film programmer here in Austin and she was here at Fantastic Fest and we met and we have a lot of uh, similar interests outside of just horror. Um, She's a big TV movie fan. She's a big movie fan period she's also really into after school specials she did a chapter for a book she put together called kid power that's really amazing and i did the tv guide ads i gave her the tv guide ads for that so she became a programmer at a thing called monster fest in australia and so she asked head press if they could launch the book there so i sort of invited myself she had a panel because we have a lot of writers in australia they were all going to get together and actually a lot it's two two writers and her and they were going to do a panel so i asked if i could come too because what kind of opportunity am i going to have to do something like this so they put together a really great panel and they showed bad ronald afterwards yeah and it was really fun and it was my first time speaking in public as you might tell i'm i get a little nervous doing these kind of things and and it, but it was great it worked out really well we sold out of the book And a lot of people seemed really interested in talking about TV movies. And they had seen a lot of TV movies, which was also really interesting. And I was really fascinated by that. So um, so she contacted Head Press again about this Miskatonic thing. So uh, I'm going to be there with maybe one other writer. We're still pulling it all together and probably Kayla. And we're all going to discuss. We're going to narrow it down. The last time the panel we did in Australia... Actually, we couldn't talk about, we had 90 minutes and we couldn't fit it all in. We got to like the 13th panel on the PowerPoint and we were still talking about, you know, that film. And so um, we're narrowing it down. It's going to be obviously strictly horror. And I think we're going to try to put a feminist spin on it. Like a lot of what I was talking about here um, will be discussed there in the context of how they did it in movies like Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and some and some true life horror like Case of Rape. Oh, that's great. I mean, that kind of plays into her sweet spot, too, with the uh, House of Psychotic Women, Yeah, where so many of those movies are so empowering. So I think that sounds terrific. Yeah, Kayla is amazing. Yeah, she really is. She's, I'm like in awe of her. It's like, I forget, when you talk to her, it's like uh, talking to just your buddy. You know, she's like, oh my God, I love this after school after school special and we talk and, but she's a powerhouse and she's really accomplished and she's doing things that women are just now starting to do. And she's been working at it for a long time. And I think she's really a trailblazer in a lot of ways. Well, the thing I like about her too, is that it doesn't just feel like lip service. Like if I talk to her, you know, in six months or whatever, she's going to remember everything that was going on in my life and actually seems to care it's not like one of these people where you're just like hey you know schmoozing and stuff she is a very sincere human being yeah and i think that comes across too in her writing um you know she's very frank and and these movies are more than just movies to her they really mean something and it's it's so great to hear that because i latch on to a lot of like obscure weird movies like to me prom night is like the greatest saddest most tragic film ever made and like I'm not expecting everybody to feel that way or Kayla even, but it's when you hear the way people respond to these really strange films that, that seem so throwaway to other people, it feels like 
it makes you want to look even deeper into the films you're watching and feeling that way about. It's great. Well, Amanda Reyes, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, madefortvmayhem.com is kind of my one-stop shop. That's where everything is. I try to post uh, when I do a new episode of the podcast. It, it also has links to my Facebook. I have a Facebook uh, group that is just for my TV movies. And you, you can join that or like that page. And you'll get, I post once a day at least. I try to do, um, try to keep it interactive. I think that's the best place to find me out. I also do the Made for TV Mayhem Show podcast, which is on iTunes, and Podcast Mania, which is also on iTunes. Probably the best places to find me. I also want to just real quickly mention, I uh, just uh, was featured in a book called When Animals Attack, which was edited by Vanessa Morgan. And it's all about, you know, Animal Amok movies. I wrote about the 1973 TV movie Locust with Ron Howard and Ben Johnson. It's an amazing film. And so that's in the book. And uh, I think it might be one of the only TV movies in there. So check it out. All right, we're back. And we're talking about The Night Strangler, the 1973 sequel to The Night Stalker, or rehash of it, I suppose you could easily say so yeah it doesn't sound like we're going to be making too many friends with this episode it's the night stalker misspelled is what it is i understand liking it because you get to see more kolchak but you do have to remove yourself from that and kind of look at it and say hey it's the same thing and i think you know as long as you're okay with that like you said it is more kolchak and i don't mind seeing Darren McGavin. I mean, he plays a great character. I love Vincenzo. So I'm, I'm okay with that, really. I don't think it stands up as standalone as the Night Stalker. It gets those characters together at the end to go wherever they're going. And apparently they were going to make a third one that wasn't the Night Killers. That was going to be them in New York doing something with Joanne Fluke's character returning. And that never happened. But that's not the Night Killers, right? No, Night Killers is set in Hawaii. There was like a third one that was going to come out that was going to be them with Joanne Fluke and Vincenzo. And then the vampire comes back from the first one. We'll get there. I think at the end of the day, like I said earlier, and like you mentioned, this is where Kolchak is going. This is what the Night Stalker TV show is going to be like. And if you don't like this, the Night Stalker TV show is just more of this with even more comedy beats. Yeah, they're going to drop Joanne Flug off somewhere, I don't know, North Dakota, maybe. I was going to say, like, where? There's nothing in between Chicago and... Seattle. I mean, I live in between Chicago and Seattle, and there's nothing here, folks. They drop her off in Lincoln, Nebraska, guys. Drop her off in Lincoln, and then they're gonna they're gonna say, "Let's not go to New York. Let's just stop here in Chicago." Well, and the the sad thing is that Jeff Rice was gonna do a series of like four or five more books, and I don't know if they would have gone around the television series or if they just would have taken the character into a whole different world. But I would have loved to have seen where he took the character. Yeah. I'd love to see where the creator went with it. And we'll talk about the Night Killers when we come back with the next episode, where we'll also talk about the Norless tapes, which oddly played February 21st, 1973. So not, you know, just a little bit over a month from when the Night Strangler played. And this was, if you want to talk about the Night Strangler having too much comedy, the Norless tapes has 
no comedy. So we're going to see the very serious version of the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler in the Norlis tapes. But another X-Files connection connected to Kolchak. Roy Thines, who plays Norlis, was in the X-Files as Jeremiah Smith as an alien. No coincidence there. Not not one coincidence. Definitely not. And, well, no, that'll probably be two episodes from then. We'll talk about the Quester tapes, though. We'll ju- that'll be a footnote. That's It has really nothing to do with the Norlis tapes or the Coljack tapes. Tapes is in the title. <laughs> tapes is in the title and the music. We're going to talk about the music on the Quester tapes because that is a definite Coljack connection. Yeah, the music is, is so great. Yeah, the, this kind of like... I mean, the score is very similar. It's got that same pop, 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 pop. But I like that. I like that a lot. This kind of like jazz score that plays against the action. And there's like that kind of soft jazz too when things are going on. That's one thing that I like about both of these, especially Night Strangler, is the use of the music. It's really good. Well, speaking of music... We want to thank John Walker for providing the theme to the Kolchak tapes. So thank you, John, for that. As we go along, he's actually promised to send us like different versions of things. So it'll be kind of like Barney Miller, where like every season had a different theme song, slightly different. Like if you listen to them back to back, you're like, oh yeah, those are different. So if you listen to like all six or seven seasons or whatever, it's like, oh, this music really changes. So we'll see if anybody can pick up on the changes from one cold check tapes to the next. I'll make sure to check out our other podcast, the tapes podcast, where we only talk about things that have tapes in the title. Quester tapes, Kolchak tapes, Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie tapes. tapes. We'll definitely go over and hear more of Chris at Culture Shocked, which is uh, his website where he is the editor-in-chief. And there's a little podcast over there that happens once a week. Okay, so you, you've calmed down a little bit, right? We used to do twice a week, two movies a podcast, which is as insane as it sounds. Don't try it at home, kids. And then we moved to twice a week, two movies, and now it's once a week, one movie with additional like new movie podcasts sprinkled in there. Because people like to hear us talk about new movies, apparently. I don't know. We're going to be talking about that John Wick movie? Yeah, we are. All right, good. All right, I just pimped your podcast. How about you do return the favor here, buddy? You can check out Mr. Mike White once a week over at his podcast, The Projection Booth. You can check him out over at projection-booth.com. That dash, it makes all the difference in the world. It does. That little dash will do you. What have you guys been talking about recently over at The Projection Booth? Well, we've had an interesting month talking about a lot of movies that nobody's ever really seen or talked about or heard of. So we're talking about things like uh, Chili Scenes in Winter, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, the uh, riveting Russian sci-fi film Stalker. So if you like kind of obscure movies, this was the month for you. But coming up in March, we're going to be doing all 80s films. So some really good stuff like uh, Dr. Detroit, Never Too Young to Die, Beverly Hills Cop, So it should be a a real treat for the listeners. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Cold Check Tapes. If you could, please go on over to iTunes, rate and review the show. We would love to crack into that new and noteworthy category. That would be fantastic, you know, because everybody loves a good podcast about Cold Check. So go on over to coldcheckedtapes.com, which will take you to our Facebook page for now, where you can leave comments, gripes, suggestions, 
little trivia factoids that we've missed, and you will hear from us again next month with a discussion of the Norless Tapes and the Night Killers. So there it is, another tale of defeat snatched from the jaws of triumph, another case of virtue unrewarded, of dishonesty being the best policy, injustice will rampant... You shut up and put that stupid recorder away? Let me get some Get that story published. No, don't tell me when I'm going to get published. Yeah, nobody's going to kill this story. It's already been killed, old Jack Berry. Not this one, no, sir. I'd like to see somebody shut me up on this one. Can anybody shut you up? Mr. Vicenza, you are a passenger in this car. This is my automobile. You remember what you said? I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again, remember? Yeah, I remember. That was before I was fired. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, don't worry about it, Tony. You're going to love it, New York. New York? New York. Yeah, that's where we're going. And you're lucky to be going with me. I suppose... I should consider myself lucky, too. That's right. Oh, cold check. Do you know that I have heard just about all I want to take from you or even hear ever again? You think you've got problems? Here I was, one semester shy of getting my degree in psychology, and what happens? You show up outside my house for one day. <laughs> mouth, all mouth, cold check. Compared to you, I am tongue-tied. And before I know what's going on, there I am being yelled at by that captain of police. Yada da yada da yada da. Peace! Can I have some peace? Please, not peace! Thank you.